I'll say, first of all, that we are doing this show today um, partly because I think it's a show that maybe a lot of uh, show, a lot of it's an episode that a lot of shows wouldn't do. A- and we, we were first approached by it um, uh, about it by the Marshall Project. And the Marshall Project is a nonpartisan, uh, nonprofit online journalism operation that studies criminal justice issues and reports on them. When we were first uh, approached about this by the Marshall Project, I turned to Betsy Kaplan and said, we have to do this show. Um, and so what is the show? Well, I'm going to quote uh, from the article that led us to all that. Um, it's an article by Anat Rubin, who I'll introduce in just a second. The article is called Downloading a Nightmare When Autism, Child Pornography, and the Courts Collide. Um, Anat writes, over several months, the Marshall Project interviewed a dozen families whose adult autistic sons were caught up in child pornography investigations, as well as clinicians, lawyers, and autism organizations scrambling to respond to parents who call in the aftermath of an arrest. Um, Right away, as we read this article, I think we both felt, producer Betsy Kaplan and I, that we understood what this was about and that we wanted to try to talk about it. So I'll tell you now who's going to talk about it with us. The aforementioned Anat Rubin, um, reporter covering, covering criminal justice, her investigation, I already told you, Downloading a Nightmare, uh, When Autism, Child Pornography, and the Courts Collide, published by the Marshall Project. Um, Alexander Westfall is in studio with me, child and forensic psychiatrist, assistant professor in the Law and Psychiatry Division of the Department of Psychiatry at Yale, consulting forensic psychiatrist for Connecticut's Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services. Uh, joining me by phone is Larry Dubin, professor of law at the University of Detroit Mercy Law and the father of Nick Dubin, who you'll hear from a little bit later in the show. Uh, he's uh, Larry Dubin is the co-author with Emily Horowitz of Caught in the Web of the Criminal Justice System. Um, I think I want to begin by maybe establishing two ground rules I think that we can all agree upon from the top. A, we're not saying on this show that online child pornography is widespread among people with autism spectrum disorder. I don't think there's even any clinical data on whether it's even slightly more widespread than it is among neurotypical people. We may find that out. But uh, And we're also not saying that any autistic spectrum disorder person apprehended for possession of child pornography is by definition innocent. What we're saying is something much more subtle than that, and and we'll we'll try to get to that. But um, maybe the place to begin is by just trying to establish even what it is that we're talking about. And and Alexander Westfall, since you're sitting near me, uh, and also because you're highly qualified, um, maybe we can begin by just trying to pin down these terms. We've There are a lot of words that get slung around these days, um, whether it's Asperger syndrome, autism, aut- autism spectrum disorder, um, the psychiatric community, the people who developed the DSM seem almost as confused as the rest of us uh, out, out here in the general public. Can you sort of help us understand what some of these terms mean? Yes, Colin, thank you for having me on. There are many terms associated with autism, as you said, including autistic disorder, pervasive developmental disorder, Asperger disorder, high-functioning autism, Canarian autism, and so on. And uh, as it stands, the main diagnostic manual of of the American Psychiatric Association recently lumped all of these conditions together into one broad category, autism spectrum disorder. This happened recently, as I said, and was a controversial thing. Many people disagreed, in particular, with getting rid of a diagnosis of Asperger disorder, which a lot of people felt captured a unique set of behaviors. Um, And many people continued to use that diagnosis. But as it is, um, 
in this program, I at least will refer to autism, meaning the broad autism spectrum disorder, which is in the DSM and which is subsumed Asperger disorder and high functioning autism. Um, and Anat Rubin, maybe you can also help us understand how it is that you and or the Marshall Project got onto this story. Sure. We actually began by researching a different story. Um, I was looking into the dramatic rise in prosecutions for possession of child pornography, um, which have gone up something like 2,000 percent in the last 20, 25 years, and also the increase in punishments, which have gone up from you know a year and a half to nine years in a federal prison. And in doing so, I talked to defense attorneys, some of whom uh, told me early on that they have had clients who were on the autism spectrum. Um, it seemed sort of a strange coincidence at first, but then when I began looking into it, I found, as you had mentioned earlier, Colin, that there were prominent autism clinicians and uh, autism support organizations that were already aware of the issue and struggling with how to respond to it. Um, and uh, we should also say that, um, Larry Dubin, as you began to look into this because of the experience that your son had, an experience we're about to talk about and, and hear from both you and him about, you kind of discovered the, the same thing, right? The clinicians on almost a kind of oral history basis n knew about this phenomenon, that there was something going on that maybe hadn't been documented that much in the literature? Colin, absolutely. After my son Nick was arrested, the very first call that I made was to the Yale Child Study Center, and I spoke to Dr. Ami Klin, who at that time was at the center, and the first thing he had said to me was that this is a very cruel prosecution that the uh, U.S. attorneys bring against people with uh, high-functioning Asperger's, or I should say Asperger's, and that he had been involved in a number of cases as a forensic psychologist, had been involved in uh, drafting what is entitled uh, Principles for Prosecutors to help prosecutors understand uh, the uh, symptomology of people with Asperger's and why they really should not be prosecuted in the way that others are because of who they are and the fact that uh, oftentimes, uh, as was with my son, uh, these people are really not aware of the violations of the law for reasons that I'm sure we can discuss uh, during the program. Well, actually, uh, I think for all of our guests, it would be helpful maybe to have a, uh, this story to talk about and to react to a little bit. So I'm going to ask you just very quickly, to, uh, before we go to the interview that I, I had with your son Nick a little bit earlier today, uh, one of the things that he wasn't necessarily all that eager to do was um, explain exactly what did happen to him. Maybe you can get us started with that. Well, basically, you know, my son, uh, who I'm very proud of, it is a wonderfully uh, uh, you know, wonderfully sensitive person who's never been in trouble with the law. He, he's never even had a drink of alcohol in his life. Uh, and, and in part, that's because as someone with Asperger's, uh, you're not socially active as other people are. One morning, while he was living by himself in a small apartment, at 6 in the morning, the uh, FBI, about 12 agents, broke in, threw him out of bed, uh, handcuffed him, questioned him for about three or four hours uh, and took his computer away and found on it uh, not just child pornography, not just the prohibited images, but also adult pornography, uh, which is on many people's computer. Uh, after that um, and his arrest, the next day we were in court, he, 
his life changed, our lives changed forever thereafter. Uh, and that is when I discovered that this really is um, a situation where people with Asperger's are vulnerable. There is a vulnerability, and, and I wouldn't say a causation, as you indicated, Colin, at the beginning of the program, but certainly a vulnerability because of who they are uh, to these kinds of charges in dealing with their developing sexuality, but without being able to act upon it uh, the way uh, people who don't have Asperger's are able to in their sexual human development. All right. I, I want to. I think that gives us enough uh, to go on to have uh, to listen to the conversation. Earlier today, I, I did uh, talk to uh, Nick Dubin about his experiences uh, with law enforcement uh, about getting arrested under the circumstances his father just um, described. So uh, this is uh, about you're going to hear about uh, t- about a ten minute conversation I think between me and Nick, and then I'm going to have uh, everybody here on the show react to it. Talking to Nick Dubin right now, and he is the author of many books on autism, including The Autism Spectrum, uh, Sexuality and the Law, and most recently, Caught in the Web of Criminal Justice System. Uh, Nick was diagnosed with Asperger syndrome in 2004. First of all, Nick, just tell me how you felt after being arrested. Well, I mean, obviously it was the shock of my life. I've not been experienced in the criminal justice system, needless to say, and uh, you know the most interaction I had with police was getting a traffic ticket. So having the FBI come in at 6.30 in the morning uh, was a shock of my life, and it was something that, you know, I couldn't even begin to fathom why, you know, people were in my apartment. I thought I was being broken into. I thought I was being robbed. I, I just couldn't even process it on that day. And to be honest with you, even seven years later, it's still hard for me to assimilate the experience just because it seems so incongruent with how I lived my life prior to 2010. So you think the criminal justice system misunderstood you um, and didn't know how to deal with the part of you that is part of the autism spectrum. Um, explain more about that. T- tell me why you feel that way. Well, I I feel that defendants in general who come in on the quote-unquote high-functioning end of the autism spectrum present with, you know, reasonable intelligence. And so I feel that a lot of times prosecutors can look at somebody who maybe has a degree in college or has been somewhat successful in the world and say, wait a minute, this person, you know, is competent and they are smart. And when a defense lawyer tries to, you know, show how autism has been impactful in their life as far as, you know, not having many friendships and delayed sexuality and things like that, uh, it's, it's hard to understand because there's, there's a discrepancy. And I felt that that was the case with me. There was one point where the prosecutors had come across a couple of YouTube videos that I had put out prior to my arrest, and they saw that I was well-spoken, and they, they just didn't understand how autism could have been impactful. I think once they read the reports that my experts put forward, it, be, it became a lot more clear, but it certainly wasn't clear you know, on their first impression of me when they watched the YouTube videos. So I want you to say more about how um, autism does affect your life. For somebody who's listening here and you know, maybe didn't go through that court case with you and maybe doesn't, so didn't, didn't read the report that you just talked about and maybe has very specific ideas about the offense you were charged with, what would you want 
that person to know about how well, I mean, autism affects your life? It affects my life. It affected my life in that I really didn't have many friendships growing up. It was hard for me to make friends. I didn't date very much. And just on a day-to-day basis, I, you know, I'm very routine-oriented. I have to do things at certain times during the day and kind of have a meltdown if that's not the case. And so I, I how it affected my life, I, I really didn't have the kind of the same sexual development. I didn't date. I didn't have friends. And, you know, of course, having the threat of prison looming over someone who has a lot of sensory issues um, and knowing that prison is not a sensory-friendly environment, to say the least, I could go on and on about this, but it does impact my life to a great extent. So um, after all this, you were placed on a sex offender registry. How did that affect your life? Well, that brings with it a great deal of uncertainty. You know, autistic people don't do well with uncertainty. What I mean by uncertainty is a lot of times I, I don't always know what neighbors know and what neighbors don't know about my status. I, I'm pretty sure a lot of them do because some of them have been pretty unfriendly to me. I've gotten people giving me the finger you know, very unprovoked. I just go out with my dog and I'm walking and there are some people that are very unfriendly to me. And so that kind of uncertainty is very hard. And the other thing is it's it's always difficult for autistic people to find work and jobs. And when you add the layer of the sex offender registry onto it, it becomes exponentially more difficult. I mean, I've seen statistics for autistic people that they're they're vastly underemployed and unemployed. And so then when you add the sex offender registry onto that, I mean, how how is somebody who already struggles to get a job going to get a job under these circumstances? It's extremely, it's a very difficult situation, not just for me, but anyone under these circumstances. Let me ask you this. It's a similar question to the ones that I've asked you, but just imagine for a moment that you were out walking with your walking your dog and then that person gave you the finger and, and some, somehow or other you, two of you managed to sit down on a park bench and talk. What would you tell that person? That's a good I haven't been asked that and that that's a really good question. I think I would want to share share with them, you know, I would want them to get to know me a little bit. I'd probably give them the book that I wrote. Uh, I would probably just want them to to read a little bit about me and see that that's this isn't the only you know aspect of who of who I am and and just know a little bit about my struggles and you know I that I didn't commit the offense for the reason that they think that I did and it you know it may take a while because again these neighbors don't really know me they don't we haven't had a chance to get to know each other because a lot of them won't even take the time to talk to me but that's that's. I, I haven't given that much thought, but that's probably, I would try to have them get to know me beyond what they think I am based on seeing my name on, you know, the registry. Try to answer this question. When you say that um, you didn't commit the offense for the reason that they think that you did, explain what you mean by that. Well, I, I, I think most people assume, you know, I'm a, I'm a monster who's, who's just lurking behind a bush to, to harm a child. And, you know, I, I I really, uh, unfortunately, was behind my computer exploring and not not really realizing that what I was doing went behind beyond the confines of my home. But I've never been anybody who's wanted to hurt a child, and obviously, I think that that is what people assume about me. And you know, first and foremost, that's what I would I would want to communicate that to anybody who who I would come into contact with. I think you put that really well. 
So there are parents listening right now. I mean, I happen to know there are parents listening right now who have uh, children who are somewhere on, on that autism spectrum, somewhere in that kind of ASD universe, and their children are younger, and they're probably listening right now and thinking, well, that could maybe happen to my child too at some point. How do I protect my child? So give them some advice right now. How, how do they protect their child? I think it's really difficult because autism p- parents of autistic children have so many issues on their plate. They've got to worry about having their child gain independence and finding a job. And frankly, this can get lost in the shuffle. It did for my parents. I mean, my parents are the most attentive parents in the world. But this, we never really had the talk, you know. This, this just didn't come up. And I, I just think with, uh, with sexuality underneath the surface and somebody with autism maybe not being forth, uh, forthcoming and wanting to talk about this because it is awkward, that, that parents really have got to be on top of it. And whether that is, you know, talking about what can go on on the computer and staying away from it, or at least until the child, you know, turns 18, putting some kind of monitoring software on there and then just really hammering home what can happen and the consequences, what, what you know, you can go to prison, you can have your life basically ruined and and putting it in dramatic circumstances and then encouraging healthy ways of exploring sexuality and uh, whether they're gay or straight, you know, way adult sexuality and and trying to have the child as he becomes an adult move into that as opposed to kind of letting it, you know, simmer underneath the surface and then, you know, bad things happen as a result. You know, Nick, I have a a son uh, and I think... um, I think even in the neurotypical world, so to speak, parents have a hard time talking about sex to their children. I think I I probably did a pretty bad job uh, of talking to my son about sex. Do you think it's even harder for parents uh, of children in this ASD world to talk uh, about the whole, just to bring up the subject of sex? I think so, because I think that the parent doesn't always know where their child is in their development because... It just doesn't come up in the natural course of, <clears throat> excuse me, conversation. So, you know, that might be something a parent would want uh, a school counselor to bring up or possibly a peer group if they can be put in a peer group or a therapist. Maybe it's not always easiest for the parent to be the one to do that. But, I mean, I do think it's really important that this comes up, and it would be nice for some actual curriculum you know, to be set aside for this in, in high school for a spe- specifically designed for ASD kids. I mean, I'm not talking about mainstream uh, high school sexuality courses, but, yeah, I, I do think it can be difficult for parents. Um, Nick, this has been a great conversation. Is there anything else that you'd like to say? I don't think so. Thank you very much, Colin, for having me on. All right. Thanks for doing this, Nick. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye now. So that was Nick Dubin. Um, Alexander Westfall, um, let's start with one thing just from this conversation. You're hearing a young man who is very, I mean, exceptionally bright and articulate. Um, and I think the average person listening to him talk would think, well, it's sort of hard to associate him with a pervasive developmental disorder. He sounds uh, so incredibly polished. What's the thing that we're likely to be missing if that's our reaction to, listen to listening to that guy talk? Well, I think as Nick described, um, one of the most important aspects of autism is the social disability. And he said he grew up without relationships, either romantic or social relationships. And I think that that's 
um, the major component. He also described his restricted and repetitive patterns of behavior. That's another aspect of autism. And um, But I think Nick beautifully illustrates how um, autism can, in a way, occur in very high-functioning people who hold down jobs, who even have families sometimes. And so it's, um, it's very much a spectrum. Um, I, I just want to also uh, talk a little bit about, about one of the things that I think he's sort of getting at, too, is that, you know, intellectually, he's fully developed to whatever age he is right now. In a lot of other ways, maybe he is 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 years old, that maybe that level of, of emotion, relationships, and sex. Can you talk about maybe that disparity? Yeah. Uh, I think a person with autism can be very physically mature, uh, can be, you know, in their 20s and the most intelligent person you've ever met, but also have the social development of a young child. And from that perspective, I think in a way it's society's responsibility in the way that you would protect a young child from dangerous things to protect people with autism from damaging illegal things they may not be equipped to recognize. Right. So, and, and not Ruben, one of the way reasons that we punish, that society punishes people for child pornography, well, there, there's kind of, I think, probably two basic reasons. One of them is that there's some kind of sense that they're, they're, they're part of a world that's capable of doing direct physical contact type abuse to children. And the other one is that uh, essentially every time you either download or watch child pornography, uh, you're re you're repeating an injury to the child who or children who appear in it, right? That that they were subjected to monstrous conditions in the making of this, of this pornography. You're essentially hammering another nail uh, or thorn into their sides uh, simply by watching it. Maybe we could talk, take the second part of this, uh, not Ruben, because obviously one of the questions you, you'd have about an ASD person is whether they can make or are likely to make that connection. And, and not Ruben, are you still with us? Oh, we might have lost, we might have lost uh, that ISDN signal. So I'll throw it back to you, Alexander Westfall. That's that's one question, right? Can can a person who's part of that ASD universe understand easily? And obviously, this is, I mean, there, there's an old saying that if, you know, if you met one person with autism, you met a person with autism. You don't necessarily know a lot about all the other people who are somewhere on that spectrum. Everybody's kind of different. But I assume there are people who would make, would have trouble having that understanding. Here's this person who usually in pornography seems to be smiling, happy, and, you know, enjoying herself, And depending on what kind of pornography it is. It might not be apparent that that person was suffering in the making of it. Yeah. I, th I think that's uh, um, an important point. I think there are a handful of things going on, even though we don't have a good answer for everything. But I think a lack of understanding um, in, of the way in which the images contribute to the abuse is a common thing, the, the kind of concrete, literal thinking which says that the image exists, therefore the abuse has happened, is a kind of common misconception that people in this situation have. I also wanted to just comment briefly on something. The, the term child pornography, Pornography itself is a titillating term, um, a socially acceptable thing, something we can laugh about and talk about. Um, when we use the term child pornography, we're talking about something which isn't funny. We're talking about horrific acts of sexual abuse and exploitation. Um, and so in a way, using the term pornography to describe them um, classifies them as part of a legal genre. And I think so it's better to call them what they are, even though it's in the legal context people use the term. It's what the charges are for but there are images of child sexual abuse. 
Um, all right. I think what we're going to do is uh, grab a little break here. We're going to reorganize. We're going to reconnect with Anat Rubin. Uh, we still got Larry Dubin with us also and Alexander West Westfall, whom you just heard. I'll reintroduce them all to you when we come back from this break. All right. We're talking about uh, the collision uh, of several worlds at once. One of them is the world of people uh, with what's broadly understood as uh, autism spectrum disorder. Uh, another is the world of what we sometimes call child pornography, but as has just been suggested to us really often is more accurately described as uh, watching images of, of children who are being sexually abused. Uh, uh, and, and the last is the criminal justice system. Uh, there may be some other pieces to this as well that are worth talking about. Um, Anat Rubin, reporter covering criminal justice, her investigation, Downloading a Nightmare When Autism, Child Pornography, and the Courts Collide, was published by the Marshall Project, kind of got us on the trail of this story. Uh, joining me in studio, Alexander Westfall, child and forensic psychiatrist, assistant professor in the law and psychiatry division at the Department of Psychiatry at Yale, consulting forensic psychiatrist for Connecticut's Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services, Larry Dubin, professor of law at University of Detroit Mercy Law, and the father of Nick Dubin, who we heard from. Nick Dubin was uh, arrested for such an offense. Uh, Larry Dubin is the co-author with Emily Horowitz of Caught in the Web of the Criminal Justice System. So, um, Anat Rubin, first of all, uh, welcome back. Thanks. There Sorry about that. That's okay. Uh, and um, maybe we can just talk about what you found out there in law enforcement and the court system. But maybe we could even begin with the story that uh, Nick and uh, Larry Dubin told about this kind of almost kind of paramilitary operation, uh, you know, that involved showing up uh, up at the door with what seemed like almost like a SWAT team uh, of 12 agents. Um, first of all, how common is that? And, and why go in with that kind of force uh, after, uh, you know, essentially a, a lonely guy sitting at his laptop? You know, in the in the 12 or so families that I spoke with, um, it, it was fairly common. Uh, most of them experienced uh, something like the the sort of raid that I describe in the piece where a, a large group of federal agents come in, they have a battering ram at the door, um, and it's uh, an instantly overwhelming situation. Um, so uh, I don't have a great answer for why the overwhelming show of force, I think, Law enforcement would say that they never know what they're going to get um, when they go into a home. Um, and yet it does seem from the families that I spoke with, including the Dubins, that oftentimes agents do have a, a fairly good sense of whose home they're going into. But needless to say, for a lot of these families, you know, this this sort of ordeal starts with that that knock at the door and it's a whirlwind after that. Right. So, uh, and Larry, I, I think it's probably worth pointing out, at, at every point on the uh, on the continuum of law enforcement, there's a point where a person with ASD is going to have a different set of reactions than maybe a neuro, neurotypical person. Uh, I mean, for your son being, a, I mean, he said he doesn't deal well with uncertainty. He doesn't deal well with the unexpected. So, Something like this is going to traumatize him maybe. I mean, it would traumatize me, too, but maybe a little bit more somebody like him. I, I think so. I think uh, it is a PTSD 
scenario that follows thereafter, uh, coupled with being involved in the legal process, uh, it is it is a totally traumatizing experience to go through that, uh, and then to face three hours of questioning uh, without, in in Nick's case, without even receiving the Miranda uh, warning. And um, you know, one of the one of the all one of the things that I think is important to point out, because Nick is a very articulate adult. I'm very proud of who he has become. But as a young child, uh, he did not speak uh, between the ages of three and three and a half. He he really didn't have any speech. He was uh, neurologically impacted by jumping and flapping. Uh, had uh, gross and fine motor limitations. Uh, but as he developed, uh, he overcame a lot of those kinds of skills. But the social aspect always stayed there throughout his throughout his life. Um, so uh, I just want to create the picture in people's minds that he did not grow up uh, to appear neurotypical uh, in all aspects of his life uh, as he would now to the average uh, observer. But yes, it, it's a it is a transforming moment in one's life that from the time the FBI agents came in to today, um, life changes radically. You know, and I also want to just talk about this kind of material and, and pornography in general. I am very old, uh, and therefore, I mean, the first time I actually saw images of two people having sex, con- two adult people having conven- conventional and and. Uh, you know, at least allegedly consenting sex was I was in college. I think a whole bunch of us went to see the devil and Miss Jones. You know, I mean, like that was I, I was like 19 or something. We live now in an environment where the minute a child has um, access, full access, unsupervised to a computer, there's at least some possibility that that child will, however old he or she is, you know, within a year or two may stumble on some pornography. I mean, do we have any sense of just like how passively pervasive this stuff is? I think it's really pervasive. I think that it accounts for that rise in prosecutions that I was talking about. It used to be if you were after acquiring child pornography, you had to go uh, through a secret network that worked by, you know, through the U.S. Postal Service or the secret back room of a bookstore. And now it's just a few clicks away. And to your point, all pornography is just a few clicks away. Uh, I think there was a recent study that showed that 93 or 94 percent of boys by the time they reach adolescence have seen pornography online. So it's a different world from the one that you're describing. Um, and I think that for someone on the spectrum, uh, you know, the the stuff that they're seeing online from an early age, um, and especially because they do seem to have a, a close relationship with computers. Computers often provide a refuge for people on the spectrum because they carry so much less risk um, than face-to-face interaction for someone with developmental disabilities. Because of that, um, they spend a lot of time online, and what they're seeing online might be their sole source of information about sexuality. Like Nick pointed out earlier, uh, parents often postpone talks about sex. Um, You know, uh, someone who uh, is hitting puberty like all of his peers uh, because his interests might still seem uh, childlike or some of his interests might seem childlike and because he's not sending out the same signals about being interested in sexuality 
you know, that subject sort of gets glossed over. So what they're seeing online, and there's a lot of stuff online, um, might be all that they're learning about this. You know, Dr. Alexander Westfall, I, in, in getting ready for this show, one of the things that I tried to get my hands on, it was hard to find, was literature about the relationship uh, between just online activities and people anywhere on the autism spectrum. You know, there, there's some a little bit of research and some clinical writing about it, but it, it does seem to me that we know, once again, with neurotypical people, online addiction happens. Uh, it happens. Uh, it happens for certain reasons. It activates certain uh, uh, areas of the brain. Uh, it negatively affects certain areas of the brain. We know that neurotypical kids are even at a point of, I mean, some of them are actually dying because they play video games, you know, for, for days and days and days without any sleep or nutrition. This can happen to the neurotypical world. And I'm just thinking what little I know about ASD, it, it would just seem that online activities of any kind m might impact that kind of person in in, in a similar way, but also a different way. I don't know. How much does anybody know about that? I think uh, most of the information is anecdotal. Uh, again, the defining features of autism are social disability, which um, can mean social isolation, which can mean a lot of time to look at things on the computer, and then this restricted repetitive patterns of behavior. And one aspect of that can be sort of an, a, an obsessional interest in some topic or another. And one of those topics can be pornography. And so I think you've got a kind of double hit there, which makes it even more of an extreme situation than you're describing in neurotypical people. But I do think that a lot of the same aspects you're describing are very true. I mean, one thing that jumped out at me as I was doing some reading for this is that uh, in neurotypical people uh, with tech addictions, um, they see a decrease in um, brain connectivity. Uh, so certain areas of the brain uh, start not to connect as well as they used to. Uh, the neuroelasticity kind of works in reverse and certain things get depressed. This is also a problem that's kind of built in to autism, right? I mean, connect connectivity is a problem. I would imagine, so it would seem to me anyway that if you're spending a lot of time online, you might be exacerbating a problem you already have if you're on the spectrum. Yeah, I think that once patterns of behavior become established, they reinforce um, one another. Uh, I also think that in a way um, there's another aspect of it too, which is what was alluded to earlier, which is it can be very, very difficult for parents to oversee this in a way because um, as was described in Nick's situation, the early behaviors in autism can be so challenging. And so when the computer comes onto the scene, parents are kind of so glad for some sort of respite from the behaviors they dealt with before that they let things go. They kind of let things pass without looking too deeply. And I think that that adds an additional layer of problems. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the, the kind of recommendation that people deal with this head on, be very involved in overseeing what their kids are looking at and have candid conversations with them about the kind of information which is out there and what they should and shouldn't look at um, is absolutely critical. So not Ruben, one part of this that I'm sort of skipping over here that's really kind of at the meat of the Marshall Project interest in this is like how the criminal justice system does handle this. In some ways, Nick's uh, experience, although it was harrowing, traumatizing, and has lasting effects for him being on a sex offender registry, uh, I, I would ha hesitate to use the term best case scenario, but a better case scenario than most of what you found. Describe what's more typical. Yeah, so I'll give you another example. Uh, I spoke with one young man who um, 
uh, was arrested for, uh, uh, convicted of possession of child pornography. He was sent to a federal prison um, where he served several years. When he came back home, he was required to register as a sex offender in the state of Florida. The state of Florida has particularly uh, harsh uh, sex offender registration requirements. So he was unable to move back in with his parents, who were his support system, um, because of the residency restrictions that prevent him from living within a certain space of a school or a park where children play. Um, and the other requirements of registration uh, which are particularly prohibitive in that state, uh, really made his life so difficult that he tried to take his own life on several occasions um, and decided ultimately that in order to survive, um, once he was done with probation, he had to leave the state for a state that had slightly less restrictive residency restrictions. And he's doing much better now, and he's uh, in a relationship with a woman who's also his caretaker and uh, you know, but he's still struggling with um, uh, jobs. He he has a, a job, um, would like a better job, but he's got a boss who knows about his conviction and the prospect of applying for a new job and having to explain his profile on the registry uh, is really overwhelming to him. Um, you know, I, I interviewed families, um, you know, whose sons were serving longer sentences. Uh, one family in particular, um, you know, who who did a lot of the things that you're supposed to do in these cases. They brought in an autism clinician. They tried to explain to the court um, the role that autism may have played in the offending behavior. Um, but the judge uh didn't really buy it. And uh, she called autism um, or Asperger's the defense of the day when it comes to child pornography. And she sentenced that young man to 11 years in federal prison. So, you know, there's really, um, it, it is true that, that Nick's story is quite harrowing. Um, but in terms of, of how he fared in the criminal justice system, um, you know, he was also quite fortunate. Um, and there are a lot of families who haven't been as fortunate and I think a huge part of the reason is what Nick and Alexander referred to earlier, which is just how difficult it is for the court to understand autism. Um, unlike something like schizophrenia, where a defense attorney can say, you know, he's hearing voices, the voices told him to do it. It's an easier narrative to, to explain and to understand. This is far more complex. And I've heard clinicians call it uh, the invisible disability. Um, because those cognitive abilities can mask the extreme deficits, sometimes what these families find is that w when they enter the criminal justice system, their kid just doesn't seem disabled enough. Um, Larry Dubin, I'm going to ask you to sort of wear two hats at once. Um, one of them is a, the law professor hat, and the other one is the father uh, of, um, of, of Nick, who's been through this uh, process. Because it's an interesting question, what Anad is talking about right now. And somewhere out there, we could find a high-functioning um, Asperger's person who, who should be held to the full standard of the law, uh, whose Asperger's is, d does not necessarily exempt him from uh, full consideration of these kinds of laws. We could also find lots and lots of people uh, in various parts of the spectrum who, should, who shouldn't be held to the full standard of the law. So I don't know. How, how does the court system sort that question out? Well, I, 
I think that when it comes to the particular crime that we're talking about, there of all of the families that I have talked to over now the last um, number of years, and I've probably had discussions with 40 or 50 families that have had uh, a child with Asperger's who have been similarly prosecuted, none of them had previous criminal records. Uh, none of them had ever hurt a child. Uh, so that's one class. Had Nick robbed a bank, had Nick uh, assaulted someone, he clearly would have known that that was wrong and would have been held responsible like anyone else. Uh, and I don't think any psychologist would come in and necessarily uh, give mitigating circumstances for that type of crime. This is really a very unique type of crime, and you normally, at least from my experience, see people with Asperger's who are charged with some type of sexually related crime, and I say related because viewing uh, uh, prohibited images over the computer is a non-touch offense, but has been viewed by the law in kind of another dimension. So people with Asperger's will be held responsible. Uh, for crimes that are done where they clearly would understand uh, they, that what they did was, was wrong. And I think this is a, a really separate area where if you really get into the cases, they all read very much alike. And I've read forensic reports from dozens of cases, and they're very similar to the ones with Nick. One other thing in Nick's case, uh, the government sent him to an FBI neurologist uh, at the J. Edgar Hoover building in Washington, D.C., whose main function was to oversee the program protecting children whose images were used in, uh, on computers. Uh, and this expert in Washington, who worked for the FBI, agreed with all of the defense experts and felt that Nick should be diverted from the criminal justice system, which means go through a program of probation and then subsequently not even have a criminal record or be viewed as a sex offender. Because Nick is not a predator, and he is publicly being held out as a predator, and I think that really is what gives people a, a totally uh, a misinterpretation of people who have Asperger's and who face this kind of criminal prosecution. Um, quick final thought about this topic before we go to break, Alexander. Yeah, I think the with a typical person who looks at these sorts of images, they overcome a enormous set of social checks. They overcome the concerns about the implications of the way their behavior will appear to their entire social network. And so I think that looking at these images is a marker of very substantial deviance. I think in the case of autism, though, you don't have those kind of constraints in there because of the nature of the condition. And so you don't um, have the same kind of sensitivity for some kind of problematic, perverse inclination. And um, so I think that that is not to say that there aren't people with the condition who are, uh, who are deviant, but I think that what we're talking about today is people who kind of get caught in this net, um, which is set up for people who really have substantial orientation towards children. All right, we have to take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll have a short uh, final segment on all this.
this is the point where Kion Wolf usually does the credits, but she's not here right now, so I'll do the credits. Uh, Jonathan McNichol is on the board uh, in place of Kion Wolf. The person who developed the show is Betsy Kaplan, uh, and, and this was a, a, an especially extra big effort. Um, and I should say that even uh, the person that Anat just referred to, the person who uh, was in Florida and then moved to Portland, uh, is somebody that Betsy talked to for about an hour yesterday, too. It just didn't work to get him uh, onto the show. Uh, but this took a lot of work, and, and we realized that we are walking a pretty complicated path with this show. So special thanks to her. Uh, and I should say that tomorrow we are going to, because of we've got all kinds of things going on tomorrow, uh, kind of off stage. So we're going to be re-airing the show that we did. Uh, about beauty uh, and about how our concepts of beauty intersect with the world of, among other things, uh, with the world of medicine. Uh, all right, so uh, here we are. We're talking about this uh, complicated collision uh, of values. Um, maybe one thing that we should talk about, uh, Anat Rubin, um, particularly in connection with the Marshall Project, is the notion of diversion. So there's a lot of uh, ways in which diversion, diversion from the typical criminal court process, uh, possibly ending in prison, it makes sense for a lot of people. It really makes sense for people on the autism spectrum. First of all, because, I mean, whatever else we say about issues of the images of child sexuality uh, uh, and sexual abuse, um, autistic people just don't do very well in prison, right? They're, they, they do everything wrong. They do the kinds of things that can get you killed in prison. Right. Um, they uh, uh, can be rigid about following rules once they understand them, and so they can tell on people who break the rules. And in general, uh, much of the way that prisons work um, is sort of unstated, right? There's this sort of intricate uh, uh, system of rules uh, that people on the spectrum may not be able to understand. So they can often get placed in isolation, um, either as a punishment or for their own protection. Um, uh, obviously, prison can be a very tough environment for anyone. So, um, you know, not just people on the spectrum. But yes, they do have a special set of vulnerabilities that make that uh, an especially harsh environment. Um, and, you know, in terms of, of diversion, um, I think diversion is incredibly rare in these cases. And I know that that's what a lot of the um, advocates and the families who have been through this um, are asking for. Um, in the cases where uh, uh, I have seen that and where someone has been, um, you know, maybe they are uh, required to register, but their their sentence is uh, uh, group therapy for sex offenders, it gets a little bit complicated there also because the therapy isn't really geared towards people on the autism spectrum and the way that they learn um, and... Uh, uh, in the way that they progress. And so it can get to be a sort of tricky situation. Um, I wanted really quickly just to, to touch on something that both Alexander and, and Larry talked about right before the break, which is, you know, how this community stands out from the rest of the people who download uh, images and videos of, of child sex abuse and child exploitation. And one of the reasons that we were interested in looking at uh, uh, this intersection of developmental disability and sex crimes is that it creates an opening or it gives people permission to look at some of the larger issues. Um, you know, here are these men who are clearly disabled and their disability seems to make them vulnerable to committing this offense and they're not like what we assumed they are. But that assumption of danger um, uh, has been challenged for the rest of this population also. 
Um, there was a recent study uh, that I referenced in the article from the federal government that showed that in eight and a half years after their release, um, men who were tracked, hundreds of men who were tracked um, uh, after their release for downloading or um, possessing child pornography, only 3.6% were subsequently arrested um, for a contact offense, which is a, a very small group. Um, and those results have been mirrored in other st studies as well. And they really challenge, I think, the presumption of danger that drives these prosecutions. Um, right. And that's neurotypical and non-neurotypical. That's everybody, right? Basically. That's everybody. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, it's really tough to stomach the idea of these images and videos. It's horrific. Um, and so as the laws get tougher, the punishments get tougher, we see very little resistance from the public, even as we see growing support for other criminal justice reforms. And I think that this, looking at this group of people was a way for us to sort of say, hang on, maybe this isn't what we think it is. All right. Well, I have like five more questions for everybody on this show. Unfortunately, I can't <laughs> ask any more questions. So I just want, I'm going to have to thank everybody. Uh, Anat Rubin, you just heard her, a reporter covering criminal justice, her investigation, downloading a nightmare when uh, autism, pornography, and the courts collide, child pornography, and the courts collide, was published by the Marshall Project. Track it down. It's what it got us started uh, on this whole story. Uh, joining me in studio, uh, very lucky to have Alexander Westfall, child and forensic psychiatrist, assistant professor in the law and psychiatry, psychiatry division at the Department of Psychiatry at Yale, Larry Dubin, professor at law at University of Detroit, Mercy Law, and the father of Nick Dubin, who also joined us. Thanks to all of you. Special thanks again to Betsy Kaplan for making this show happen. <laughs>